Welcome back to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast and a new conversation. I'm Joe Casey. You're probably going to the gym, getting your exercise, and eating right. But there's another element to pay attention to, and that's mental health. My guest today is Gregory Scott Brown, MD. He's a board-certified psychiatrist, writer, and wellness advocate. His commentary has appeared in the New York Times, in the Huffington Post, Psychology Today, on the Today Show, and on NPR. He's an advisory board member for the Men's Health Magazine, where he regularly contributes content for mental health stories. Dr. Brown trained at the Academy of Integrative Health and Medicine at the McGovern Medical School in Houston, and at the University of Texas Dell Medical School, where he is currently an affiliate faculty member in the Department of Psychiatry. He is an alumnus of Rice University, where he received a bachelor's degree in anthropology, and John Hopkins University, where he completed a post-baccalaureate pre-medical program. In addition to his clinical work, Dr. Brown works diligently to fight stigma, in part by hosting candid conversations about mental health with well-known actors, journalists, musicians, and professional athletes. Dr. Brown loves staying active, and most days, he devotes time to practicing yoga with his wife or going for a run with his rescue dog, Kai. Dr. Brown, thanks for making the time to talk with us today. Joe, thanks so much for having me. So retirement is a major life transition that comes with both opportunities and challenges. And the pandemic, along with many professional athletes starting to speak out about it, highlighted mental health for many people. And I'm wondering, how do you define mental health and how is it being redefined? Well, I'll tell you, when many people think of those two words, mental health, the first thing that comes to mind, Joe, is mental illness. People tend to think of things like depression, anxiety, PTSD, they think about suicide. And obviously, these are important topics for us to consider. But mental health, on the other hand, is the driving force that really dictates how we live our lives. It's how we interact with each other, how we love the quality of our relationships. It relates to our emotional intelligence. And so I think it's important that as people think about how they can stay mentally healthy, that they're also thinking about these other factors that play such a very important role in how we live and act. And words do matter. And when we think about wellness and healthcare, it's easy to think about physical fitness, at least mm-hmm. I do. And we head off to go to the gym. Mm-hmm. Why is self-care so important also on the mental and emotional sides? Well, I mean, the, the most obvious answer here is that in the United States alone, there are over 130 suicides on average every single day. And so when we ignore our mental health, I mean, the consequences can be devastating. But aside from that, I mean, if we're just looking at quality of life, right? I mean, so many people, millions of Americans, tens of millions of Americans every year struggle with anxiety. They struggle with depression, especially when it comes to men uh, like us. We're not doing that that good of a job talking about it. And that goes across the lifespan. Um, Actually, older people actually have higher suicide uh, rates than younger people do. And so, again, it's important that we think about physical health or health in general, that we're also uh, thinking about our mental health in that that conversation. So I really enjoyed reading your book, The Self-Healing Mind. And in it, you explain the five pillars of self-care. Can you give us a quick overview? Right. So, I mean, we're talking about how to best preserve or improve our mental health. I think many people automatically assume these two different uh, routes. They think about 
talk therapies, which are great. I mean, I think anyone who has the luxury of, of getting a talk therapist should definitely do that. And the other thing they think about are psych meds and psych meds are evidence-based as well. As a psychiatrist, I prescribe psychiatric medications in my practice every single week, but we can't ignore the power of self-care, evidence-based self-care. What I mean by that, as I outlined in the book, are things like sleep, uh, spirituality, nutrition, breath work, and moving our body. Joe, these are things that all of us have access to. I mean, we all breathe 20 to 30,000 breaths every single day on average. We all move our bodies, right? We can all learn how to tap into the power of meditation, focusing on nutrient-dense foods. And so, again, if we're learning how to live our life in a way that supports not only our physical health, but our mental health as well, then I believe we'll all be better off. And it caught my attention in your book that you make a distinction between movements and exercise, not necessarily synonymous. Tell us a little bit about, about movement, why you phrase it that way. A lot of people are intimidated by this idea of exercise. So Dr. Brown is telling me I need to get a gym membership or I need to sign up to run a marathon. Again, that's great, but that's not what I'm, I'm advocating here when it comes specifically to what we can do to improve mental health. Now, I'll tell you, there was several years ago, there was a huge study, a meta-analysis in the American Journal of Psychiatry that actually found that people who move their bodies more at a lower risk for developing depression, regardless of geographic region, regardless of age. And so by movement, I mean, even if it's just walking to the mailbox every day, dancing with your, with your partner in your house, right? Doing some, some simple stretches in your chair. Again, the more that we move our body, again, it's enhancing a protein in the brain called BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, which kind of acts Joe like fertilizer in the brain and allows our uh, neurotransmitters, those chemicals in our brain that are so uh, important for mental health to be released and to communicate with each other more efficiently. And for you personally, what are some of the things that you do? I know yoga is one of them, but what's your different ways of movement that you incorporate in your day? You know, I'll, I'll tell you that I mean, yoga is obviously important for me. I also like to run, but I've, I've found that over the past few years, I've spent a lot, a lot of intentional time trying to slow down a little bit with my movement. So I, I find myself going on a lot more walks <laughs> these days than I used to. I've really gotten into something called walking meditation, which if you haven't tried it, is it's great. Plug in your, your headphones. They have uh, walking meditations on YouTube, on Spotify. Go for a, a 10, 15 minute walk and just really plug into that conscious awareness. I find that the, the combination of moving your body with that meditation piece can be exceptionally calming. And, and I found that it's benefited my mental health a great deal. So tell us more about spirituality and mental health. This is one of the, the most profound conversations that I have every week with my patients. I'll tell you, I love having this conversation because usually when I ask a patient, what do you think about spirituality? The very first thing that naturally comes to mind is, is religion right? Some people are religious, some people aren't religious. But the thing about spirituality, as I write in the Washington Post article, or one of the Washington Post articles, is that spirituality is all about connection, right? And for some, that might mean connecting with a higher power through prayer, connecting with, with God. 
For others, it may be connecting with the people around them, altruism, selfless service, volunteering your time. I think of my grandmother when I was a kid. Every Monday, I would go with her to the soup kitchen where we would serve soup to, to the homeless community, right? That can be a form of, of connection. And even something like meditation, connecting with your inner self. I mean, so many people are struggling with this idea of feeling disconnected that finding that connection through spirituality can also be beneficial for mental health as well. And that jumped out to me in, your, in that Washington Post article that I read, and there'll be a link in the show notes for people who want to access it, this point about connection and mm-hmm. how can people better connect with their inner self so that we can better connect with others? I think one of the ways that we can do it is through meditation. Again, Joe, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that a lot of people, if they've never tried it, are intimidated by it. It's like, you know, I made it this far, I've never meditated, why should I start now? And I'll tell you, the, the first time I tried it, you know, it was a daunting task for me as well. I mean, sitting alone with your thoughts, I mean, sometimes that allows you to hear what's going on in your head even louder. But in time, it, it gets easier. And I would say, you know, if you're just starting off with a meditation practice, start off with 10 minutes. I mean, set a timer on your phone, close the door to a, pick a room in your house or your apartment, close the door and just find that, that space where you're focusing on your breath, allowing your thoughts to go where they may. And you may find this, this sense of peace and tranquility that you wouldn't have found otherwise. So I think that's a good place to start. And they call it practice for a reason. That's, that's <laughs> it right. takes, takes time. That's I'm right. quoting my inner Alan Iverson. <laughs> I'm a lifelong Celtics fan from Boston, but I had season tickets to the Sixers for 10 years when, during the Iverson years. Yeah. So I never forget the, uh, the practice comment. But it's a good point. You do, you do get better at it over time like anything else, but it's a very good investment in time. Now I'm looking over at my vertical bookcase and I see this book by Angela Duckworth. So you know where mm-hmm. I'm going. Grit. Grit. And I noticed in, in your book, you know, the comment about resilience. Are resilience and grit the same thing or are they different things? So I, I can't look backwards here, but that the same book is on my shelf there behind me. I'll tell you, I mean, we're kind of splitting hairs here. We're talking about these words, but here's what I mean. I mean, so many of us, Joe, when we're faced with, an obstacle, right? We try to just plow our way through it, right? There could be a mountain in front of us that there's no way we can move it. And we're banging our head against the mountain. We're trying to blow the mountain up, you know, whatever those mountains are in our life. Resiliency, on the other hand, in my view, relates to this idea that esteemed uh, psychologist Marsha Linehan talked about when she coined this, this term Uh, radical acceptance, right? So there are things that we can change. There are other things that we don't necessarily have control over. And resiliency really relates to this idea of radical acceptance. How can we really learn to accept the things that we don't have control over and focus more on the things that we do have control over? Sometimes that means letting go this idea that we're going to use grit to get through every obstacle in our life. Much like meditation, learning to be resilient is a skill that takes practice. But again, in time, it, it becomes uh, easier and a lot more natural. So I noticed 
in reading your book that mental health isn't just a theoretical academic concept for you or a professional matter. You write about issues that you grappled with after your freshman year at Juilliard. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could share with us just what did you learn from that experience and what you grappled with? So when I was in my early 20s, I struggled with depression, like tens of millions of other people in the United States and even more across the, the globe here. And the thing to keep in mind is being a psychiatrist or being interested in mental health doesn't automatically make you immune from these very real challenges that many of us face. I had trouble really connecting with a psychiatrist or a therapist at that time, even though you know I had good insurance and I was encouraged to, to open up and talk to people. I just didn't feel comfortable doing that. So I would say that experience, being on the other side of the couch as a patient, really helped shape my viewpoint for how I present mental health care, not only to my patients, but people I speak to in the public. These are human experiences that many of us at some point or another, especially when it comes to anxiety, will face. And so I think that we need to do a better job of just normalizing these conversations, sharing our stories, our hope narratives, being compassionate with the people around us, asking questions, asking people how they're doing, and then being willing to take 10, 15, 30 minutes to actually listen to their response. Because you never know what people are going through and what that conversation might lead to. It might make a life better. It might even end up saving one. And as you know, as people think about retirement, the topic of purpose is front and center. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. But first, I'd be curious, just your sense of mission and purpose, because I sense in listening to you and reading your work that there's a mission behind a lot of the things you're doing to educate people about mental health. Yeah, you know, I, I think the purpose behind my work, and it, it's a purpose that continues to evolve every day, is this idea that we're all thinking about mental health. We're just not talking about it enough, which is why I'm so delighted that we're having this conversation right now. And I've seen how my 80-year-old dad has changed the way that he talks about mental health over the past few years. You know, I've seen how relatives, people in my family have changed the way they think about mental health. Conversations I'm having on Instagram or in my personal life with people who are coming out and sharing their stories and how inspiring those stories are is just heartwarming for me. And I really think that the more we have conversations like the one you and I are having today, the more these types of podcasts really get out there, I think that I really do. I really think that we're going to start to see a decline, a dent in some of these suicide statistics and rates of depression and anxiety as more people feel that it's more comfortable having these conversations. And again, as it relates to retirement, people finding their their purpose, I would say that we're all here for a reason. I mean, and even if, as cliche as it sounds, even if our purpose is, hey, I want to get up tomorrow morning and begin that process of discovering what my purpose is. That's something that a lot of people find inspiration and motivation in. And if that's where you are, I would encourage you to do that. Appreciate that. And tell us a little bit about how you became interested in the oboe. (laughs) 
not sure I've been asked that question before, but it's in the book. So it's that's fair game. I'll tell you, my dad is someone who always loved music and he was watching a program, I believe, and an instrument that was being played and he just thought it was was beautiful. And again, you know, my dad's from a small town in, in Jamaica. He thought it was a oboe, it was actually an alto saxophone. And so he said, son, this is what you should play. You should play the oboe. And I, I took it up. I was pretty good at it and never really looked back. And how is music part of your life today? Well, I'm no longer playing, but I'll, I'll tell you this, that music, you know, in many ways was my first love. So it's something that's very much part of my life. I enjoy uh, listening to classical music. I'm a part of a, a beautiful board of advisors here in Houston called the River Oaks Chamber Orchestra that was actually started by uh, my oboe teacher when I was in high school. And so I, I enjoy plugging into the classical music scene in that way as well. So the five pillars that you write about in your book really provide a blueprint of things that all of us can access a matter of, of really paying attention to them and getting disciplined. But I'm curious, when should people, in your opinion, seek professional help? Well, I would say anytime someone is on the fence, they, professional help is not something that should automatically be dismissed. I mean, there's nothing wrong with going to a therapist or psychiatrist and getting an evaluation. And then the therapist or psychiatrist says, okay, why don't you try A, B, or C? And if you need to contact me in three months, you know where to find me. But I would say if you've already done that or you find that you're talking to people in your life or you're talking to your friends or your religious leader and you're, you're still feeling like there's, there's something that's missing here or there's any degree of what we call in the field of functional impairment, which means you notice that you're having trouble connecting with people around you. You notice that they're starting to, you're starting to form cracks in your, your marriage. If you're not able to get out of bed, you're not able to leave your house. I mean, those to me would be more red flag type issues that would indicate, okay, now it's really time to, to get some help. But psychiatrists and therapists, we don't bite. And if you come to the clinic and it turns out you really don't need to see us or not, you don't need to see us yet, we'll communicate that to you and, and things will be okay. Well, thank you for a great conversation and for everything you're doing to bring so much attention and education to this important issue. I appreciate it, Joe. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dr. Brown. Time for takeaways, actionable ideas to put into place following this podcast conversation with Gregory Scott Brown today. Number one, how are you doing on self-care? Often, many people get so caught up in taking care of others that they really neglect taking care of themselves. Step back, reflect on how are you doing with that? Are you carving out the time and attention that you deserve for self-care? Number two, which of the five pillars that Dr. Brown talked about today and that he covers in detail in his book, The Self-Healing Mind, need your attention right now. And just as a reminder, the five pillars that he talked about are sleep, spirituality, nutrition, breath work, and movement. Take a minute and score yourself one to five scale, five being knocking it out of the park, one being not doing anything there right now, but could use it. How do you score? What needs your attention? Where could you focus in on from here? that will really be in your best interests. And number three, consider professional help if it's something that you need. I think you'll find Dr. Gregory Scott Brown, MD's book, The Self-Healing Mind, to be a great resource. But as you said, if others can, if professionals can help you, don't hesitate to contact 
a professional. Thanks for listening to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. The mission here is to help you retire smarter by looking at your life in retirement holistically, not just in terms of financial planning. Thanks for listening.